welcome to the first season of Reading by Flashlight. I'm Allison, and the first season's book is written by Jennifer Lynn Barnes. You may or may not know it, but it's The Inheritance Games. So since this is the first season, I've decided to add this little section into the podcast where I tell you a little bit about the book before we actually start reading it, and I'll do that in the first episode of every season. So this book is called The Inheritance Games. It's written by Jennifer Lynn Barnes. Um, It says she's also the author of the Naturals series. I don't know what that is. So if you do, you probably know her already. But this is the description of the book on the back. It's a paragraph taken from the book. $46.2 billion, I thought, my heart attacking my rib cage and my mouth sandpaper dry. Tobias Hawthorne was worth $46.2 billion. And Tobias Hawthorne didn't leave everything to his grandsons. He didn't leave everything to his daughters. The math in this equation did not add up. It couldn't add up. My brain ground, ground to a halt. My ears rang. One by one, the other occupants of the room turned to stare at me. So if I were to summarize this book by um, another description it has inside the book. So the main character is a girl named Avery Grams. She's in her some year in high school. I'm not, I don't remember what it was, but a billionaire, Tobias Hawthorne, who's a fa- you know famous celebrity, died of some sort of sickness, dies and he leaves her his, basically his entire fortune. And the only catch is that Avery has to move into his house in order to obtain it, in order to have it as her own. She has to move into this mansion that's full of riddles, secret passageways, and codes. But also something that's bad is that the Hawthorne house is actually occupied by the people that Tobias Hawthorne had disinherited. His grandsons, his... um daughters who he barely gave anything to have to live in the house as well unless she decides to kick them out. So one of the heirs, Grayson Hawthorne, is convinced that Avery is a con woman trying to just get the money out of them all and it says caught in a world of wealth and privilege with danger around every turn Avery will have to play the game herself just to survive in this twisty, thrilling new mystery from beloved author Jennifer Lynn Barnes. So that's kind of my description of the book, and the book is 91 chapters, and that does seem like a lot, but it's only like about 370 pages. So the chapters are usually in between four to six pages, so that's why we're going to be going over chapters one through 12 in this video, because it's not that long. So that's up next. Also, I would guess the genre for this would be something like mystery, thriller. And I guess I didn't realize this at first, but after I got the books, I didn't know anything about this. But I guess there's like slight romance, not in like, I don't know this book, but like later on in the second and third one, I guess there's like slight romance. But that's not like the whole main theme of the book. So, yeah. Okay, let's get on with it. So chapter one of The Inheritance Games. Chapter one starts off with her saying, when I was a kid, my mom constantly invented games. And she tells us about 
games that they made up, like who can make their cookies last the longest, the quiet game, the marshmallow game, the flashlight game, the like lava, the floors of lava games, like all these games that she played with her mother. And then she says, our longest lasting game was called I Have a Secret because my mom said that everyone should always have at least one. Some days she guessed, some days she guessed mine. Some days she didn't. We played every week right up until I was 15 and one of her secrets landed her in the hospital. The next thing I knew, she was gone. So I guess she's kind of thinking of this or it's a flashback because next thing you know, we're in this completely different setting where someone says, your move, I don't have all day. And then we find out that she's playing chess with an older man who's homeless and so she okay so she makes her move on the game and she eventually hits checkmate and then he she says you know what that means harry and he says i have to let you buy me breakfast so i guess they're he harry's homeless and living in a park where they played chess each morning and then after that, she starts to talk about school. So she says says she's been having the habit of cutting things close. She's went from a grade of a 98 to a 92. And she said she was in the middle of drafting an English paper in Spanish class when she was called to the office. And it was the principal's office. And she goes and he folds his hand, you know, the every way we think of a principal. I assume you know why you're here. Yeah, so she says, sorry, but I don't. So then it says that she, the principal's name is Principal Altman and says, lets me sit with my response for a moment, then presents me with a stapled packet of paper. This is a physics test you took yesterday. She says, okay. And then he says, Mr. Yates graded the test, Avery. Yours was the only perfect score. So no one else made anything perfect or high up there and so she says great that's that's fine and then he says um no it's not because mr yates has intentionally created the test to be impossible to get a perfect score and he's never given one in 20 years don't you see the problem here and then she starts to come to the conclusion that he thinks that she cheated on the test and so they kind of go over and he tells her that that he thinks that he'd like to help her, you're, you know, you're a smart person, and that she didn't need to resort to cheating. And he also tells her that he doesn't want her to risk any plans of her future. So she says, I'm a junior. I'll graduate next year with at least two semesters worth of college credit. My test score should put me in scholarship contention in UConn, which is one of the top science programs in the country. And so he's like, science? And she's like, statistical risk assessment. And so she asks him, are you a fan of calculated risks, Miss Grams? And then that's when she starts to come to the conclusion that like, oh, right, cheating. He thinks that I'm cheating on this test. And then she says how she's been made time, especially for this test, to put to studying it into, because she wanted to see how far she could go with this class. And she said, I can take the test again. If you want me to take it, I'll do it right now and I'll get the same grade. And he said, and would you still do it if I told you that your teacher made a new one just for you with every question different, but just as difficult? 
and she says she doesn't even hesitate and she says i'll take it and then she says okay we'll arrange this for you tomorrow you can do it then this certain period of time and then she says now like she cuts him off and says no no and then he's like oh, oh what and then she's like she says forget sounding meek forget being invisible i want to take the new exam right here in your office right now so now we come to chapter two where um avery is home and the chapter starts off by her sister libby saying rough day as a question and she says her sister is seven years older than her and way too empathetic for her own good or mine she tells her that she's fine and tells her about her trip and about her second grade and all of that that happened in school and she says tips were good tonight so we know she has a job now and she says how good and the book describes her as this. She says, Libby's sense of style resided somewhere between punk and goth, but personality-wise, she was the kind of eternal optimist who believed a $100 bill was just around the corner at a hole-in-the-wall diner, which most entrees cost $6.99. So she just pulled out a couple of dollars in her hand, and she said, good enough to help make rent. And then she tries, Libby, the sister, tries to give her the money back, but she's like, I'm going and she won't take it. And then she says, I will throw this cash at you. And she, and then, um, I, I forgot her name. Avery says, I'll dodge. And then she, she said, you're impossible. But she put the money away because she knows she's not going to accept it. And so Libby gives her a muffin tin and she says, you will accept this muffin from me. And then she's like, yes, ma'am. And she takes it, but she realizes that there's a bunch more muffins and cupcakes. And then she says, oh no, Lib. So at first you're like, muffins, cupcakes, how is that a bad thing? Like, those are the best. That's what I was thinking. Like, she sees this counter just full of baked goods, and she's like, oh, no, here it comes. And I'm like, oh, yes, it's food. And then she said, Libby says, it's not what you think. And then it says she was an apology cupcake baker, a guilty cupcake baker, baker a please don't be mad at me cupcake baker. So then we figure out this is kind of her way of saying I'm sorry, and she must have done something to have that many muffins and that many cupcakes. And so then uh, um, Avery says, not what I think, so he's not coming back. And then Libby says, it's going to be different this time, and the cupcakes are chocolate. And then she says, my favorite. And so they're interrupted by someone coming through the door, and I'm going to read what this says. It says, Right on cue, Libby's on-again, off-again boyfriend, who had a fondness for punching walls and extolling his own virtues for not punching Libby, strolled in. He snagged the cupcake off the counter and let his gaze rake over me. Hey, jailbait. And then Libby said, Drake. So, yeah, right off the back, this guy does not seem like a very nice person. And I don't like him. I hope you don't like him either. He seems mean. Okay, so... Then um, Avery's getting all mad because she's, like, apparently had enough of this guy. And Drake says, this isn't your apartment because he tells her that this isn't, this isn't healthy for Libby. This isn't what she should do. And then Libby's like, Avery's my sister. And then Drake says, half-sister, joking. And then the paragraph says, he wasn't, but he also wasn't wrong. Libby and I shared an absent father but had different moms. We'd only seen each other once or twice a year growing up. No one had expected her to take custody of me two years later. She was young. She was barely scraping by. But she was Libby. Loving people was what she did. And then Avery said, well, if he's here, I'm not. And Libby picked up a cupcake and says, I'm doing the best I can. 
And it says that she was a people pleaser and that he liked putting her in the middle and used her to hurt um, Avery. And then she says, I couldn't just wait around for the day he stopped punching walls. And she says, if you need me, I'll be living in my car. So chapter three starts out with saying, my ancient Pontiac was a piece of junk, but at least the heater worked. So she's in her car now. She's in her car. Dinner's done. She's ready to go to sleep. And Libby's texting, asking her to come back, to text her back, to talk to her. And it says she ends up just staring at her phone instead. And she says, besides Libby, there's exactly one person in my life worth texting. And I kept my messages to Max short. And we later find out that Max, which is her nickname, Maxine is her real name, is her friend, I guess best friend or, yeah. And she says that there's no immediate response because Max's parents are big on um, phone-free time and they take hers very frequently. And they always had, they always were monitoring her messages. So they spoke in code sometimes, I guess, just probably for fun and not to get caught. So she lays back down on her seat and she closes her eyes, but it's not comfortable, so she can't go to sleep. So she reaches into the glove box and retrieves it. She says the only thing of value that her mother had left her, and it's a stack of postcards. Dozens of just empty postcards of places that they were planning to go together. There was Hawaii, New Zealand, Machu Picchu, Tokyo, Greece, and just all these, you know, places that they were planning on going together. And it was one of the only things that she still had that was her mother's. And then her friend uh, messages her and tells her, are you okay? And then Avery says, I'm fine. And then Max starts to go off like, oh, no, you're not. And then she calls back and she's like, are you really okay? And then she says, you know me, Maxine. I always land on my feet. So chapter four starts off with saying, next day I paid a price for sleeping in my car. So she's basically really sore. Her whole body's aching. She stinks. And she says, I had to take a shower after gym because paper towels in the bathroom at the diner could only go so far. And she said that her hair was wet. She was arriving to class wet, like she just jumped into a lake and got out. But she says, it didn't really matter because I was just wallpaper. No one paid attention to me. I was just kind of invisible. So then her teacher starts to talk and, you know, it's basically your random school stuff. And then the door opens and an office aide assistant comes in. It's like Avery Grams is wanted in the office. So she says, I took that to mean someone had graded my test. So then um, Mr. Altman, who is the principal, meets her in the secretary office, and he's, like, smiling real wide, like, Avery. And then she says an alarm went off in her back of her head because no one is ever that glad to see me. And then she's, he, he says, right this way, and she sees a familiar neon blue ponytail inside. And she says, Libby? And so now we see that she has neon blue hair. That'd be cool. That'd be cool to see what she looked like. Like, if that was a TV show and she had that hair, you know, done, I'm watching it. And so she's, like, worried because all of a sudden, like, Libby doesn't, she works at an assisting living facility, so she can't just walk out in the middle of a shift. So there had to be, like, a important reason that she was here. And so she's, like, did something happen to Dad? And she's, like... And then your fa- someone says, your father's fine. And she whips around, and there's someone sitting in the principal's chair. And 
who says that your father's fine and says he was wearing a suit and he looked like the kind of person who should have had an entourage. He says, as of yesterday, Ricky Grams was alive, well, and safely passed out in a motel room in Michigan, an hour outside of Detroit. And so she's like, how can you possibly know all this? How could he? And so he didn't answer her question. Instead, he arched an eyebrow and said, Principal Altman, can you give us a minute? So he leaves and he's like, of course. And so he says, you asked how I know your father. It would be best for the moment for you to assume that I know everything. And then she says, a guy who thinks he knows everything, I muttered. That's new. A girl with a razor sharp tongue, he returned. So she keeps telling him, who are you like? What are you doing here? And he says, all I want is to deliver a message, one that has proven rather difficult to send via traditional means. And then Libby, who talks sheepishly, says, that might be my fault. And then Avery's like, what do you mean? Because she obviously senses that both of them know about something about her and she doesn't know. And so she's like, what do you mean that's your fault? What did you do? And then Libby says, the first thing you need to know is that I had no idea that the letters were real. And she's like, what letters? I I didn't get any letters. And then the boy in the suit says, the letters that my grandfather's attorneys have been sending certified mail to your residence for the better part of three weeks. And then Libby's like trying to defend her, I guess what she did. She said, I thought they were a scam. And the boy says, I assure you they are not. And so he says, okay, Let's go back. My name's Grayson Hawthorne, and I'm here on behalf of McNamara, Ortega, and Jones, a Dallas-based law firm representing his grandfather's estate. He says, my grandfather passed away earlier earlier this month. His name was Tobias Hawthorne. And he kind of pauses, trying to find a reaction out of her, and there is none. And she's like, does that name mean anything to you? And he said, well, no, should it? And... He says, my grandfather was a very wealthy man, Miss Grams, and it appears that along with our family and people who worked for him years ago, you've been put into his will. And she's like, what? His will? And he's like, yeah, I don't know what he left you exactly because we haven't been allowed to look at the will until everyone's present. That was one of his last requests was that everyone that was in the will had to be there for the hearing. And she says that, yeah, we've been postponing it for weeks because we haven't been able to get a hold on you. And then she says, why would your grandfather leave anything to me? And he stood up and said, that's the question of the hour, isn't it? So that's what they've been trying to get a hold of her because they want to know why this person that they know nothing about is in their billion-dollar net worth grandpa's bill. Not bill, will. But she said, I've... er, why do I keep saying she? He's taken the, he said, I've taken the liberty of making travel arrangements on your behalf. And she's like, this was not an invitation. This wasn't like, come on, let's go. You want to come? It was a summon. Like, he was telling her. And then she says, what makes you think that I, and she starts to go off, but then Libby cuts her off, and she's like, great. And then Grayson says, I'll give you to a moment. And then he leaves. And then they're kind of quiet for a few seconds, but then, you know, Avery can't contain it, and she's like, okay, start from the beginning, and don't leave anything out. So it says, she fidgeted with the inky black tips of her blue ponytail. She says, a couple of weeks ago, we started getting these letters, addressed to you, but care of me. They said that you'd inherited money, gave us a number to call. I thought they were a scam, like one of those emails that claimed to be a foreign prince. And then Avery says, but why would this Tobias Hawthorne, a man that I've never even met, put me in his will? 
And she, Libby says, I don't know, but that, she gestured in the direction that Grayson had gone, is not a scam. Didn't you see the way that, like, Principal Altman, that he, way he dealt with him? Like, do you think he bribed him? Threatened him? And so she looks Tobias Hawthorne up, and the two of us were, re- she says, the two of us were reading a new headline. Noted philanthropist died at 78. And she's like, do you know what that means? Libby says, it means rich. She says, no, it means someone who gives to charity. So, Rich, Libby gives me a look. What if you are charity? They wouldn't send this guy's grandson to get you if you just had been left a few hundred dollars. We must be talking thousands. You could travel, Avery, or put it towards college or buy a better car. But then she's like, but why would a total stranger leave me anything? And then Libby said, well, maybe he knows your mom. I don't know, but I do know that you need to go to that reading of the will. And then... Avery says, but we can't just leave. Neither can you. We'd both miss work. I'd miss classes. And, you know, we can't do that. And she said, Libby says, my shifts are covered for the next two days. I made some calls and I made some calls for you too. Come on, wouldn't it be nice just to take a trip? And she says, fine. Okay, but where's exactly is the will being read? And Libby grins and says, Texas. And they didn't just book our tickets. They booked them first class. Fancy. So chapter five starts out by saying that I've never flown, flown before. Looking down from 10,000 feet, I could imagine myself going farther than Texas, Paris, Bali, Machu Picchu. Those had been someday dreams. So Libby's taking pictures because she's so excited. She says, smush in and hold up your nuts because, you know, um, they come with complimentary fruits and snacks and all that stuff, I guess, in first class. So it says, a lady on down the aisle shot Libby a disapproving look and says, I wasn't sure whether the target of her disapproval was Libby's hair, the camel print jacket she changed into when she ditched her scrubs, her metal studded choker, and the selfie she was attempting to take. So she definitely has her own style of dressing. And they send the picture and Libby's like, I'll send it to you, but don't put it online, okay? And then she's like, Okay, and I mean, she knows the reason why she won't put it online, and she says, I won't. And so she says that she doesn't, it's not a big sacrifice because she has social media, but she usually uses it to DM her friend Max and says, speaking of, I pulled out my phone. So she starts to talk to her about what just happened, and she doesn't answer immediately, but yeah. So he'd made his money in oil then diversified so she looked him up and was trying to figure out more about him and so she said as i'd expected based on what grayson said about his father was wealthy man the newspapers used to the word phil- philanthropist that he was some kind of millionaire i was wrong she says tobias hawthorne wasn't just wealthy or well off there weren't any polite terms for what tobias hawthorne was other than than really rich so he says billions with a B in plural. It says he was the ninth richest person in the United States and he was the richest man in Texas. $36.2 billion. That was his net worth. And she says, eventually I stopped wondering why a man I never met would have left me something and started to wondering how much. So then Mac texts her back and is like, are you kidding with me? And she's like, nope, I'm legit on a plane to Texas right now, getting ready to land. And she's like, Wow. And so then they're met up once they land by a dark-haired woman in an all-white power suit met them 
um, as they stepped off security. And she says, Miss Grams. She nodded to Libby. And then she addressed me, Miss Grams. She says, I'm Melissa Ortega from McNamara, Orte- Ortega and Jones. She says, you're a very hard woman to get a hold of. And she, um, Avery shrugs and says, I live in my car. She doesn't live there, Libby said quietly. Tell her that you don't. Then Alyssa says, not really mentioning the last few words, we're so glad that you made it. And she says, I'll be your liaison in the, to the firm. Anything you need while you're here, come to me. And then she's like, don't lawyers bill by the hour? Like, how much is this costing the Hawthorne family? And then she says, talking to her gave her the same feeling as talking to Grayson Hawthorne. Like she was someone. Like she was someone important or in power position. And she says, if, is there anything I can do for you? She says, striding through an automatic door, her pace not slowing at all when it seemed like the door might not open this time. And um, Libby and Avery said, well, how about some information? And she's like, well, you'll have to be a bit more specific about that. And she says, do you know what's in the will? And Alyssa says, I do not. And she gestures to a black sedan idling near the curb. And so they go in. Libby follows her in. Alyssa sits in the passenger seat and the driver's seat was already occupied. Once they're in the car, Alyssa says, you'll find out what's in that will soon enough. We all will. The reading is scheduled for shortly after your arrival at Hawthorne House. And so this is what she thinks. Not the Hawthorne's houses, just Hawthorne House. Like it was some kind of English manor completed with the name. And so Libby's like, is that where we're going to be staying, the Hawthorne House? And so then she, um, Avery mentions that their return tickets have only been booked for tomorrow. They've only, they're only staying one night, or so it seems. And so Alyssa says, yes, you'll have your shared bedroom, though. Mr. Hawthorne bought the land the house is built on more than 50 years ago and spent every one of those years adding one of the architectural marvel he built there. I've lost track of the total number of bedrooms, but it's upward to about 30. Hawthorne House is quite something. And she says this, like, really casually, like... A 30-bedroom house, more than 30 bedrooms. Like, I've never seen that before. And then she says, well, how do you know um, this Tobias guy? Libby had asked Alyssa, and she said, my father had been Tobias Hawthorne's attorney since before I was born. I spent a lot of time at the Hawthorne house growing up. And so she starts to ask Alyssa, well, do you know, have any idea why he would have left me anything at all? And Alyssa said, are you the world-saving type? And... Avery said no. Alyssa said, ever had your life ruined by someone with the last name Hawthorne? And Avery said no. And it says, Alyssa smiled, but it didn't quite reach her eyes. Lucky you. So chapter six starts off with Avery saying that Hawthorne House sat on a hill. Massive, sprawling. It looked like a castle, more suited to royalty than ranch country. There were half a dozen cars parked out front and one beat-up motorcycle that looked like it should be dismantled and sold for parts. And then Alyssa eyed the bike and says, it looks like Nash made it home. Nash, Libby asks. Uh, the oldest Hawthorne grandson, Alyssa replied. She says there are four of them in total. And then she th- starts to think, four grandsons. I've already met one, Grayson, and there's still three more to meet. So next they enter the house and she says the foyer was bigger than some houses, easily a thousand square feet. Like the person who had built it was afraid that the entryway might have to double as a place to host balls. So there were stone archways, there was rooms stretched up to two stories, ornate ceilings, elaborate carvings from wood, everything just looked expensive money. That's basically what the house was. And then a voice says, you've arrived and right on time. Trust there were no problems with your flight. 
And so it's Grayson. Grayson's back. And then Alyssa, like, glares at him. He's like, you. And then Grayson says, I take it I'm not for forgiven for interfering. And then Alyssa said, you're 19. Would it kill you to act like it? It might, he says, and you're welcome. It, so it says, Avery took a second to figure out what he meant by interfering. Grayson meant to come catch, to f not catch, fetch me. He wasn't supposed to. She was. And he says, may I take your coats? And then Avery's like, yeah, no, no, I'm keeping mine. And Libby gives hers, and she's just, like, not even really paying attention. She's just, like, staring because, like, they've never been in some place like this. But we're not, probably haven't even seen a place like this. And then it says that Grayson lays a hand on a panel on the wall and turns his hand 90 degrees, pushed in the next panel, and then a motion too fast for me to decode hit at least two others. I heard a pop and a door swung open, appearing itself, separating itself from the rest of the wall. I'm like, what the? And then Grayson reaches in and pulls out a hanger, and he's like, it's a coat closet. Like, that was a normal explanation for why part of your wall just popped out of place and then says Alyssa took that as her cue to leave us in Grayson's capable hands and I tried to summon up a response that wasn't just standing there with my mouth open like a fish so then she heard she hears a bunch of like creaks and noises like wood like creaking wood and there's a shuffling behind some of the coats and a figure steps out and she says, a boy, maybe my age or younger, comes out. And he looks a little bit like Grayson by in wearing suits. But that's where it ended. Says the boy's suit was rumpled like he'd been taking a nap for 20. And the jacket wasn't buttoned. And the tie was laying around his neck. And he says, am I late? And he says, one might suggest that you, you're, you direct the query towards your watch. And then he says, is Jameson here yet? Kind of like ignoring the response. And Grayson says, no. The other boy grins and says, and I'm not late. He looks at everyone. He's like, oh, these must be the guests. How rude of Grayson not to introduce us. And then he's like agitated by his brother, I guess. And he says, this is Avery Grahams and her sister Libby. Ladies, this is my brother Alexander. For a moment, it seemed that that's how Grayson was going to leave it, she says. But then he says, Xander is the baby of the family. And then like Lil Libby is just like, nice to meet you. And she's like still like not really paying attention just because like she's just like awed at everything around her you know she's just trying to be nice and then it says that Libby spoke and said spend a lot of time in cloak closets and Xander dusts his hands off on his pants secret passages he said then attempts to dust off his pant leg with his hands this place is full of them Chapter 7 starts out by saying, My fingers itched to pull out my phone and start taking pictures, but I resisted. Libby had no such compunctions. So then Xander steps in front of one of Libby's pictures and he says, May I ask, what are your feelings about roller coasters? And then it looked, she says it looked like Libby's eyes might pop out of her head. This place has a roller coaster? And he says, Not exactly. And says, the next thing I knew, the baby of the Hawthorne family, who was six foot three, if he was an inch, was pulling my sister towards the back of the house. And then she's like, what, you guys got a roller coaster? How can you not exactly have a roller coaster? And then she's left with Grayson, and I guess he's called to take her to the room. And so she says, I apologize for Xander. He tends not to buy into such antiquated notions is thinking before one speaks and sitting still for more than three consecutive seconds he said he's the best of us though even on his worst days and then 
um, Avery says, but Miss Ortega said there were four of you, four grandsons, I mean. And he says, I have three brothers, same mother, different fathers. Our Aunt Zara doesn't have any children. And on that topic of any relations, I feel as though I should issue a second apology in advance. And then a woman sweeps into the room, says, Gray, darling. And it's in once... Once her flowery shirt had settled around her, I tried to peg her age. Older than 30, younger than 50. Beyond that, I couldn't tell. She says, they're ready for us in the room. Where's your brother? And she's like, don't you mother me, Grayson Hawthorne. You think he was born wearing that suit, she said. And he says, she says that he was a f- real free spirit. And then she says, oh, you must be Ava. And then Grayson says, her name's Avery. Mother, like seriously. You don't, yeah, no, this person's in the will. How do you not know her name? And then she says, I always swore my children would call me by my first name. I raised them as my equals, you know, but then I'm, I always imagined having girls. Four boys later, and she gave the world's most elegant shrug. Um, and Avery points out that obviously Grayson's mother was over the top. And then she marches up to Avery and she says, do you mind if I ask, dear, when's your birthday? And this was like, kind of took Avery by surprise because she's like look there's we're here for like the will of a billionaire and you want to know when my birthday is and so this woman comes up to her and says are you a Scorpio Capricorn not a Pisces clearly and then Grayson says mother and then he says he corrects himself and says sky and then it says it took Avery a moment to realize that that was her first name and and then a third woman's voice enters the conversation and says, I doubt Miss Graham's plans to stay long enough for a fireside chat or a tarot reading. It says a second woman, Skye's age or a little older, inserted into our conversation. If Skye was flower, flowy fabric and oversharing, this woman was pencil skirts and pearls. What's a pencil skirt? Okay, I'm going to look. I don't know what a pencil skirt is. What? is a pencil skirt. I don't want to know what a pencil is. I don't want to know what a pencil skirt is. Okay. A pencil skirt is a slim-fitting skirt with a straight, narrow cut. Generally, the hem falls to or is just below the knee and is tailored for a close fit. It is named for its shape, long and slim like a pencil. Oh, there's a picture. Okay, it's the one they wore with, like, the blouse tops interesting okay now we're back to the story the real part of this podcast not me looking up what pencil skirts are okay so she says i'm zara hawthorne caligaris do you mind if i ask how'd you know my father so from that we can see that these are the two daughters of tobias hawthorne and she's like but i i didn't know your grandfather and then she says well we appreciate your presence. It's been a trying time these past few weeks. I'm sure you can imagine. And then she made, she says that it made it sound like when no one could get a hold of you. And then a man comes in and says, Zara, Mr. Ortega would like a word. And she says, the man who I took to be Zara's husband didn't spare so much as a glance for me. And then Skye said, my sister has words with people. I have conversations, lovely conversations, actually. And then Grayson says, Mother, I will pay you right now to stop. And then she says, Sky pats her son's cheek and says, Bribe, threaten, buy out. You couldn't be more Hawthorne if you tried. That's why we call him the heir apparent. 
And there was, um, Avery says there was something in Skye's voice that made her think that she had greatly underestimated just how much the Hawthorne family wanted that will to be read. And Skye says, now, she said, looping one arm around me and one arm around Grayson, why don't we make our way to the great room? So chapter eight starts out saying, the great room was two thirds the size of a foyer. An enormous stone fireplace stood at the front. There were gargoyles carved inside the side of the fireplace, literal gargoyles. And so she says, Grayson deposited Libby and me into wing-back chairs and then excused himself to the front of the room where three older gentlemen in suits stood talking to Zara and her husband. And Avery guessed that they were the lawyers. And then Alyssa joins the group and decides to look around to see if she recognizes any other people. And she says that there's a couple in their 60s at least and a black man, 40s, with a military bearing who stood with his back to a wall and maintained a clear line of sight to both exits. And Xander, she says, who was clearly another Hawthorne brother by his side, this one was older, mid-twenties maybe. She said he needed a haircut and he had a pa paired his suit with cowboy boots that, like the motorcycle outside, had seen better days. So she says, this must be Nash, she said, because she remembered that Alyssa had talked about all four of them. And then an ancient woman joined the fray Nash offered her an arm, but she took Xander's instead, and he led her straight to Libby. And Xander said, this is Nan, the woman, the legend. And she says, get on with you. It's I'm this rascal's grand grandmother. She says, older than dirt and twice as mean. And then Xander says, she's a softie and I'm her favorite. Nan grumbles, you are not my favorite. Then Xander grins and said, I'm everyone's favorite. This Nan person, I like her. She seems like this really grumpy person. But I bet later on she's going to, like, do something and prove to be, like, not a grumpy person. You know, like that kind of character. I don't know. Let's just keep reading. And she, Libby asks, was Mr. Hawthorne your son? And so she says, no, he was my son-in-law. And Xander says he was also her favorite. And so Libby asks her if she's all right just because of all this that's happening. And she says, I'm fine. I just need some air. So Zara's husband stops her on the way out and said, where are you going? We're about to start. And he grabs her arm, like, get back in here. And she, like, pulls her arm out. And she's like, I didn't care who these people were, but no one got to lay hands on me. She said, I was told there are four Hawthorne grandsons. She said, by my count, you're still down to one. I'll be back in a minute. You won't even notice I'm gone. So she goes outside. And she says, I ended up in the backyard instead of the front, if you could even call it a yard. The grounds were immaculately kept. There was this fountain, a statue garden, a greenhouse, a stretch into the distance. As far as I could see, land. Some of it was treed, some was open, but it was easy enough standing there and looking out to imagine that a person who walked off to the horizon might never make their way back. So then she hears his voice and someone saying, if yes is no and once is never, then how many sides does a triangle have? And then she, it's coming from above her, so she looks up and she sees a boy sitting on the edge of a balcony overhead, dangling and balancing on a wrought iron railing. And then she says, you're going to fall. And he smirks and says, an interesting proposition. And she says, that wasn't a proposition. He offers a lazy grin and said, there's no shame in propositioning a Hawthorne. And so he says, you must be the mystery girl. I'm Avery, I, she corrected. She said I'd come out here to get away from the Hawthorns in the grief. There wasn't a trace of care on this boy's face like life was one grand lark, like he wasn't grieving just like the people inside. 
He says, whatever you say, MG. Can I just call you MG, mystery girl? She crosses her arm and says, absolutely not. No. And then she describes that he brought his feet up to the railing and stood. He wobbled in a moment of chilling prescience. He's grieving and he's too high up. He shifts his weight to one foot and held the other out. And she yells, don't, because he's, I mean, he's going to fall. And then before, before he can fall, says he grabs a railing with his hands, holding himself vertical, feet in the air. And then he drops down right beside her and says, you shouldn't be out here, MG. And she says, well, neither should you. And he replies by saying, if I do what I should no more often than I say what I shouldn't, then what does that make me? And she's like, I don't know. And he says, what does that make me? And she says, I don't know. And two, she says, what? Jameson Hawthorne said, the answer to your first riddle. If yes is no and once is never, then the number of sides in a triangle has two, is two. And then he says, touche, MG, touche. Chapter nine starts off by saying that she stayed outside a few more minutes and then she went back in and Jameson Hawthorne was standing with, you know, his family like he had just gotten there and he was like he had been there. And a lawyer says, now that everyone's here, let's get started. So she's starting to wonder, why does it take four lawyers to read a will? And then he, Mr. Ortega says, you are here to hear the last will and testament of Tobias Tattersall Hawthorne. Per Mr. Hawthorne's instructions, my colleagues will now distribute letters he has left for each of you. So then the other men who were all the three other lawyers begin to go around in the room handing out envelopes. And he says, you may open these letters when the reading is concluded. So Avery was handed an envelope. And um, he continues by saying, Mr. Hawthorne stipulated that all the following individuals must be physically present for the reading of this will. Sky Hawthorne, Zara Hawthorne, Caligaris, Nash Hawthorne, Grayson Hawthorne, Jameson Hawthorne, Alexander Hawthorne, Miss Avery, and Miss Avery Kylie Grahams of Newcastle, Connecticut. And then Mr. Ortega says, since you're all here, we may begin. And Mr. Ortega reads the will. I, Tobias Tattersall Hawthorne, being of sound body and mind, declare that my worldly possessions, including all my monetary and physical assets, be disposed of as follows. To Andrew and Lottie Lawlin, for years of loyal service, I bequeath a sum of $100,000 apiece with lifelong rent-free tenancy granted at Wayback Cottage, located on the western border of my Texas estate. What? $100,000. And they weren't even part of his family. Like, they weren't family members. They worked for him. A piece. A hundred thousand dollars a piece. And then he continues to say, To John Oren, head of my security detail, who saved my life more times and in many ways than I can count, I leave the contents of my toolbox held together in the offices of McNamara, Ortega, and Jones, as well as a sum of three hundred thousand dollars. Dude, this guy has money to spare. Like what? And then she's like, Tobias Hawthorne knew these people. They worked for him. Why would he, why, I'm not getting anything. And then he says, to my mother-in-law, Pearlie O'Day, I leave an annuity of $100,000 a year, plus a trust for medical expenses as set forth in the appendix. All jewelry belonging to my late wife, Alice O'Day Hawthorne, shall pass to her mother upon my death to be distributed as she sees fit upon hers. And this is where I started to really like this Nan character. Alice, because she says, don't you go getting any ideas, she ordered to the whole room. I'm going to outlive you all. 
let's just take a moment of silence for her. Thank you. That was, I'm going to outlive you all. Wow. She's, she's a confident woman. And then Mr. Ortega smiles and says to, to my daughters, Zara Hawthorne, Caligaris, and Sky Hawthorne, I leave the funds necessary to pay for all the debts of the day and time of my death. And then he says, additionally, I leave to Sky my compass, and to Zara, I leave my wedding ring. And then another pause, more painfully than the last, and Zara's husband says, go on. And Mr. Ortega says, to each of my daughters, I give an inheritance, one-time inheritance of $50,000. And everyone in the room is like, what? You gave more to the people who worked for you. And everyone's like, what in the world? Tobias Hawthorne left his daughters less than he left his security detail. And then suddenly, Skye's reference to Grayson as the heir apparent took on a whole new meaning. So then Zara's, like, feels like she's, like, figured something out. And she turns towards Skye, her sister, and she's like, you did this. Me? Daddy was never the same after Toby died, Zara continued. Disappeared, Skye corrected. She said, listen to you. You convinced him to go, didn't you? And to leave everything to your sons, Sky's voice said. The word you're looking for is sons. And then Zara says, but if I had a son, but you didn't. Sky let that sink in, did you, Zara? And then Zara's husband steps in and says, enough. We're going to sort this out. And he's sort of saying like, yeah, let's just break this will and give you more of the money. But then Mr. Ortega says, you'll find that this will's ironclad with significant dissentives to anyone who might be tempted to challenge it. And then I translated that to mean roughly shut up and sit down. Yes. And he says, if I may continue to my grandsons, Nash Westbrook Hawthorne, Grayson Davenport Hawthorne, Jameson Winchester Hawthorne, and Alexander Blackwood Hawthorne, I leave everything, Zara muttered bitterly, because by now, she and her sister have gotten less, so they think that all the fortune is going to be split up between the four of them. But Mr. Ortega says $250,000 apiece payable on their 25th birthdays until such time shall be managed by Alyssa Ortega, trustee. And then Alyssa, who's like shocked at this, is like, what? What? And then Tobias, Haw so then she's like, Tobias Hawthorne hasn't left everything to his grandsons. Given the scope of his fortune, he's left them only a small fraction. And then Grayson's like, what is going on here? Because remember, before, he's told to be, like, the heir. Like, he was the one most likely to inherit most of the money, even if it could be split four ways. And so that's where the paragraph from the back of the book comes from. Tobias Hawthorne didn't leave anything for everything for his grandsons. He didn't even leave everything for his daughters. And then Mr. Ortega says, please, everyone, allow me to finish. Because, you know, everyone's, like, mad about this. Like, who got the rest of the money? And then the remainder of my estate, Mr. Ortega read, including all properties, monetary assets, and worldly possessions not otherwise specified, I leave to Avery Kylie Grahams. Chapter 10 starts out by her saying, this is not happening. This cannot be happening. I'm delusional or something. And then Sky's voice says, he's left everything to her? Why? Why did she? And then Grayson says, there has to be some mistake. This cannot be what's happening. And then Avery says, he's right. Grayson's right. There must be some sort of mistake. Like, why would he have given me a person I haven't even met, person he hasn't even met, all this money? And then Libby says, Avery, stop it. 
it's money we're talking about. And she says, I clearly telegraphed that I should shut up and stop talking about mistakes. But she's like, but there's no way. There's no way that this multi-billion dollar fortune has been left for me. Like, things didn't happen like that. And then Sky says, you see, even Ava agrees this time. Even she agrees that it's ridiculous. And she says, this time, I was pretty sure she'd gotten my name wrong on purpose. She had heard the will. She knew my name. They all did. And then Mr. Ortega says, I assure you there's no mistake. And I assure the rest of you that Tobias Hawthorne's last will and testament is utterly unbreakable. Since the majority of the remaining detail concerns only Avery, will cease with the dramatics. But let me make one thing very clear. Per the term of the will, any heir who challenges Avery's inheritance will forfeit their share of the estate entirely. At the words of Avery's inheritance, she's like, feels like she's going to throw up. She says it was like someone had snapped their fingers and rewritten the laws of physics, like the coefficient of gravity had changed and my body was ill-suited to coping. And Zara's husband said, no will is that ironclad. Not when there's this kind of money at stake. And Nash Hawthorne says, spoken like someone who didn't really know the old man. Then Jameson mutters, traps upon traps and riddles upon riddles. Grayson says, I think you should leave. And he's talking to Avery, of course. And she says, not a request, an order. Technically, Alyssa Ortega says she sounds like she just swallowed and something big. Because she's like, mm. she doesn't want to say it, but she needs to. It's her house. And um, Avery says, clearly, she really didn't know what was in the will. She'd been kept in the dark, just like the family. How could Tobias Hawthorne blindside them like this? What kind of person does that to her own flesh and blood? And then she's like, but I still don't understand. And then Mr. Ortega says, my daughter's correct. You own it all, Miss Gams, not just the fortune, but all of Mr. Hawthorne's properties, including Hawthorne House. Per the terms of your inheritance, which I will gladly go over with you, the current occupants have been granted tenancy unless and until they have given you cause of removal. He says, under no circumstances can those tenants attempt to remove you. And then she's like panicking because she realizes they're going to kill me. They're actually, someone in this room is going to try and kill me. She said, the man I'd pegged as former military strove to stand between me and Tobias Hawthorne's family. He said nothing but crossed his arms over his chest, keeping me behind him and the rest of them in his sight. And then Zara crawls out, Orin. Like, she's mad. She's like, you work for this family. And he says, I worked for Mr. Hawthorne. And he held up the piece of paper. The piece of paper that was his letter that was written by Mr. Hawthorne. And he says, it was his last request that I continue in the employment of Miss Avery Kylie Grahams. Security, because you're going to need it. And not just to protect you from us, Sander added to my side. Take a step back, please, Orrin ordered. Xander held up an in and he's like, peace, I make dire predictions in peace. And then Jameson said, Sam's right. Zan's right. The entire world's going to want a piece of you, mystery girl. This has a story of the century written all over it. And she says, story of the century. My brain kicked back into gear because this was every indication that this wasn't a joke. I wasn't delusional. I wasn't dreaming. I was an heiress. Like what? Also... I think it's really cool that, like, this kind of just ruined the dramatic moment. But, like, how Oren was told that his last request was to continue 
to protect Avery Grams just because he followed he worked for Mr. Hawthorne, not everybody else. Okay, on to chapter 11. Chapter 11, the first words, I bolted. She just ran out of the house. Like, she's done. She's going crazy. It's like, what is happening? And then Livy bursts out and she's like, Avery, are you okay? Also, are you insane? When someone gives you money, don't try to give it back. But she said, you do, because she was thinking about that when she always gives her her tips, but she won't take it. Every time I try to give you my tips. She says, we're not talking about tips here. We're talking millions. And then... Avery tries to correct her by saying billions, but she can't even get the words out of her mouth. And then Libby says, think about what this means. You'll never have to worry about money problems again. You can buy whatever you want, do whatever you want. You can even, those postcards of your mom's, you can even go anywhere you want. Just think of the possibilities. And Avery said, I did, even though this felt like a cruel joke, like the universe, it was, this was its way of tricking me into wanting things that girls like me were never meant to. And then the door opened. And Nash Hawthorne stepped out. It says, even wearing a suit, he looked every inch of a cowboy, ready to meet a rival at high noon. And then she braced himself. She braced herself because she's like, billions, wars have been fought over less. And then she's like, this guy's coming out here to try and get me, try to tell me, threaten me. I don't know what it is. But he's like, relax, kid. I don't want the money. I never have. As far as I'm concerned, this is the universe having a bit of fun with folks who probably deserve it. He says, you take care. And then she, he gets on a motorcycle and rides off. And then Avery's like, Libby, we can't stay here. I doubt the rest of the family is as excited about or is, you know, like neutral about the will as Nash is. We need to go. And then a deep voice says, I'm going with you. And then she realized that it's Oren and John Oren. And she says, I don't need security. I just need to get out of here. And then he says, you'll need security for the rest of your life. But look on the bright side. I also drive. Like, yeah, you may be in danger for the rest of your life, but at least I can drive you places. That's a big plus, right? No, no, no. And so she asks Oren to take her to a hotel. They take her instead to this the fanciest hotel that she's ever seen. And he must have been going to take her there anyway because Alyssa Ortega was waiting for them in the lobby. And she said, I had a chance to read the will in full. I brought a copy for you too. I suggest we retire to your rooms and go over the detail. Our rooms? And she's like, the doorman were wearing tuxedos. There were six chandeliers in the lobby. A woman was playing a five-foot-tall harp. We can't afford rooms here. And then Alyssa gives her, like, a pitying look. And she's like, oh, you own this hotel. And she's like, oh, what? And then they're like, I'm fainting. Or, you know, like, they're about to faint. They're like, we own the house. We own the money now. And we own this gigantic, probably multi-million dollar hotel. And she says, Alyssa says, besides which, the will is now in probate. It may be some time before the money and properties are out of his scroll, but in the meantime, we will pay and pick up the tab for anything that you need. And Libby's like, is that a thing that real law firms do? And she says, you've gathered, you've probably gathered that Mr. Hawthorne was one of our most important clients. It wouldn't be more precise to say that he was our only client. And now, now I said, the truth sinking in. 
the clients and me. So then it goes on to say that it took them almost an hour to read and reread and reread and reread the will. And Tobias Hawthorne had only put one condition on my inheritance. You're to live in Hawthorne House for one year, commencing no more than three days from now. Alyssa had made that point twice already, but I couldn't get my brain to accept it. Uh, the only strings attached to inheriting billions and billions of dollars is that she has to move into the mansion. She says, okay, a mansion where a large number of the people who were expecting to inherit this money still live, and I can't kick them out. She says, Alyssa says, bearing extraordinary circumstances, it is a very large house. And she says, and if I refuse, or the Hawthorne family has me killed, Alyssa says, no one is going to have you killed. Libby says, I know you grew up around these people and everything, but they are totally 100% going to go all Lizzie Borden on my sister. And then Avery says, really would prefer not to be axe murdered. Orrin says, well, risk assessment, low, at least insofar as axes are concerned. And then she says, believe me, in the state of Texas, if an heir dies while a will is in probate, the inheritance doesn't even revert to the original estate. It becomes part of the heir's estate. And then she's like, I have an estate. But she says, well, what if I refuse to move in? She says, if you fail to move into the Hawthorne house in three days, your portion of the estate is going to be dropped off to charity. And she's like, not, it's not even going to be given to Tobias Hawthorne's family. And she says, nope. And she says, or not she, um, Avery says, your father wrote that will, right? And Alyssa says, in consolation with the other partners at the firm. And then Avery says, did he tell you, did he, did he tell you why? And she says, I don't think even my father knows why. Do you? And now we're on the last chapter, chapter 12. And, yeah, chapter 12. So, um, Max and, um, Avery are calling. Avery called Max. And it's about past midnight for Avery, but it's two hours earlier in the morning for Max. And she said she half expected her mom to sweep in and snatch the phone away. And then Max is like, how? What? What? And then she looked down at the letter in her lap. It said that, to, well, she knew that Tobias Hawthorne had left her an explanation but in the hours since the will was read, she hadn't been able to pull herself together to open the envelope. And she's like, I don't get this. And then Max says, maybe you were switched at birth. And I like this. I like this description. She says, Max watched a lot of television and had what could probably have been classified as a book addiction. I have one of those too, Max. She says, maybe your mother saved his life years ago, or maybe he owes his entire fortune to your great-grandfather, or maybe you were selected via an advanced computer algorithm that is poised to develop artificial intelligence any day. And then Avery snorts and says, Maxine, maybe my father isn't really my father. And then they kind of go quiet because they're thinking, well, maybe. Maybe Tobias Hawthorne hadn't disinherited all his family. Maybe she was part of his family. And she might have honestly been. She might have been. I don't know. And then Max says, are you okay? But then Avery swallows and said, Tobias Hawthorne left me a letter. You haven't even opened it yet, Max said. Avery! Avery! Open the letter! And then Avery says, talk soon. Very soon, Max promises. And in the meantime... Open, period, the, period, letter, period.
Okay, so they hung up. They both hung up. And she was about to open the envelope. But there was a knock on her door. And Orion entered and said, Who is it? Grayson Hawthorne, Orin replied, if my men considered him a threat, he never would have even entered the floor. I trust Grayson, but if you don't want to see him, no, I said. She's like, eh, why not? It's already bad enough. So he says, open the door. And then Grayson says, aren't you going to invite me in? And he says, Gra she says, Grayson wasn't the heir anymore, but he you wouldn't have known it from his tone. And then Avery says, you shouldn't be here. And he says, I've spent the past half hour telling myself the same thing. And yet, here I am. And then she says, Grayson. And then he says, I don't know how you did this. I don't know what hold you had over my grandfather. Or what con you think you're running. And she's like, I'm, I'm not. And he cuts her off and says, I'm talking right now, Miss Grams. I haven't a clue how you pulled this off. But I will find out. I see you now. I know what you're capable of. And there's nothing I wouldn't do to protect my family. Whatever game you're playing here, no matter how long this con is, I will find the truth. And you better hope you got help when I do. I'm literally using, like, hand motions, like, this guy's serious. Like, he's like, you took my money and i'm gonna get you back for it oh sorry that was my stomach okay so then she orion steps back to like slam the door in his face but before he can she does it and slams the door and so i'm gonna read this last paragraph with one last glance at orion i retreated to my bedroom open the letter that's what max had said this time i did it removing a card from the envelope the body of the message was only two words long. I stared at the page, reading the salutation, the message, and the signature over and over again. Here's what it said. Dearest Avery, I'm sorry. T-T-H. So that's it. This is chapters 1 through 12 of The Inheritance Games by Jennifer Lynn Barnes. I hope you guys think this is a good book so you'll continue to listen. Um, thank you for listening to this episode if you've listened to the whole thing. Hopefully you have. And yeah, next week on Monday will be the next episode where we'll be doing thirteen chapters 13 through 24. We're going to be doing 12 chapters each and I think the last one will have a couple less. But um, I'm going to have a, after a couple of episodes, I will have a kind of schedule, like a certain time each day on Monday. And yeah, but thanks again for listening. Thanks for enjoying. If you enjoyed it, please share it with friends, family, anyone you think might be interested in this book or interested in this podcast. If you have any book suggestions that you might want to be done in the future, you can leave them in the um, comment section which I will put up on should be available it's available on Spotify so if you have Spotify you can check it out there but thanks again and be back next Monday for chapters 13 through 24 of the inheritance games